says, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And they, then one of them named Cleopas answered them, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it necessary that the Christ should suffer in these things and enter in his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he had interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. <coughs> so they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us. For it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Let's pray. O oh Lord, we want the dead to come to life. We want the blind to see, and we are impotent to do that. And so we cry out to you, the one who brings resurrection and life the one who causes the blind to see, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear. And so would you give us eyes and feet and ears this morning? Would your spirit work so that we might see and savor your son? It's in his name we pray. Amen. Many of you may have seen, or at least you're aware of the show, Undercover Boss. In the show, a high-ranking executive takes on a secret identity, changes their appearance, and then they take a low-level job in their own company. And as they go, they have to work all type of menial tasks they've never done before or haven't done in years. And there's all kinds of funny and illuminating experiences as they get to see a side of the company they barely ever see. And their eyes are open, so to speak. They get to see things from a new perspective. And the show often works both ways because those who are in lower level, after their eyes are, oh, I was working next to the CEO, they see things from a different perspective and angle as well. They came to see the bigger picture of the company. It's a rather amazing 
fact of our experience, that we can all experience the same thing, but react to it differently. When I was in college, my family went to the Grand Canyon, and as we were there, there was a crack maybe about yay wide, and me and my brothers just kind of went and took a little jump. It was fun. We experienced it. My mom almost fainted in terror. We all experienced the same thing, but our experience of the same event led to radically different reactions. And you've experienced that in your life. Something that at one point you laughed at, later you maybe see and you cringe at. Maybe a hymn that you were growing up like, oh, we're singing this again. Now your heart rejoices as you sing that song. You have the same experience, but you experience it differently. Well, this morning we see a radical change because within one day, these two men have a completely new response to Jesus. Within 24 hours, they move from seeing Jesus just as an unaware stranger to being an insightful teacher to an honored host, and then they end with seeing him as, a, as the risen Lord. If you have a bulletin, that outline is on the back, and we'll work through that as we go through the passage first. In verses 13 through 24, we see these two men see Jesus as an unaware stranger. You have to remember the context. The context is last week, we saw that the two, several women went early in the morning to the tomb. And when they went there, the stone was rolled away and Jesus' body was not there. And an angel appeared to them and told them, why are you looking for the living among the dead? And they went back and told the disciples then Peter. And we know from other places, John also went to investigate. And they found the tomb, but it was empty. Now on this same day, there are these two men. They're not the apostles, but two of the men. They're walking to the Emmaus, the town of Emmaus. It's about seven miles away. And as you might expect, as they're going, they're rehearsing all the things that have been happening. Surely, three years of Jesus' ministry would have given them the opportunity to discuss many things. But this last week has been a whirlwind of activity. You've probably had this in your life. There's so many things going on, and you're talking to a, your spouse or loved one or a friend. You go, you remember this? And you go, whoa. That was just a week ago. Man, that seems like yesterday. And then the other person goes, well, that seems like a year. And you go, yeah, it kind of seems like a year too. So much going on. You're trying to process it all. Within the last week, these are some of the things the disciples saw. They first saw Jesus coming in Jerusalem. And the people shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is the son of David. Blessed is the king of Israel. Yes, they're seeing this is the king. And they're shouting. They're excited. And yet, as we studied that in Luke 19, we saw that Jesus responded kind of oddly. He then got off the donkey and he wept. Sure, that why are you weeping? And Jesus wept and he said, Father, they do not see. Well, what's going on? How can he say they don't see? They're proclaiming him to be the king. Well, it's because though they're seeing, they're not perceiving. They're seeing Jesus as king, but in the wrong light. They see him as king to overthrow Rome, not as a king who's come to overthrow sin and death. You know, there's a big difference between seeing and perceiving. Seeing and recognizing information and then seeing and understanding and being able to apply it. A few weeks ago, the air conditioner in here and in the fellowship hall went out. And so Jared graciously gave his time and came with some other friends and they came and looked at it. And at one point I was with them looking at an electrical panel box. Everyone was seeing, but one person 
didn't perceive. It wasn't Jared, by the way. That person, who will go nameless, heard what all these other men were saying and just kind of nodded their head. "Uh Uh-huh, yeah, uh uh-huh, let's do that. Well, you say, I agree, that's good, we should do that. We can all look at the same thing, but go, I don't get it. Does it work now? Great. I don't know what you did, but I'm glad it works. We can see the same reality and not understand what's going on. And that's what Jesus is saying. Look, you all see, but you don't see. You don't really understand. But they only they didn't only see Jesus come in on a donkey. Then they witnessed Jesus talking to the crowds in the temple every day, having debates with the religious leaders, warning of Jerusalem being destroyed. And yet they didn't understand. They could recount Jesus' betrayal, his willing acceptance to be arrested, his sham trial, and then Herod and Pilate four times saying, this man's innocent. They saw it, but they didn't grasp it. They discussed, why did Jesus rebuke those women who were weeping for him? That was weird. Why did he call on his father to forgive? And why did he tell that other man on the cross he'd see him today in paradise? What, what did that mean? That was weird. They probably got, went, you know, why was it dark for three hours? You remember that? And yeah, I heard some people saying that the priests are trying to cover it up, but the temple, the veil was torn in two. Did you hear? Yeah, what, what did that mean? Well, what's going on? And then Jesus, when he died, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Well, what did all this mean? And they're going back and forth. And as they're going along, Jesus himself comes and starts walking with them. Now, if you're downtown, you're going to the art walk, or you go on a hike, and you see someone, you oh, hi. You say hi, and then you expect them to keep going. You don't expect them to go hi and then walk with you. Keep going. But Jesus walks with them. Now, for their culture, this was not weird. Remember, they just had the week of Passover. This is the day after the Sabbath. So hordes of people, literally thousands, would be walking back to their villages. It would not be abnormal as these worshipers are returning home for them to come along someone else and join conversation. This would be a normal aspect. So Jesus is not being socially awkward here if you are concerned. And as they're going, Jesus has heard them talking. He goes, what are y'all talking about? And they stop. Literally, they're walking, and Jesus' question is so bizarre, they, they can't even walk. What do you mean, what are we talking about? It'd be like living on September 12th, 2001, and asking someone, what do you think of what happened yesterday? And they go, what are you talking about? How could you live the day after September 11th and be like, what's going on? It was so monumentous for our nation. Everyone had a thought about it. They might have been confused. They might have been discouraged. But they had some idea. And yet Jesus again says, what things? What's going on? And so they begin to talk. Notice something interesting in verse 16. It says, they didn't recognize Jesus. Now we're going to go into all kinds of bad speculation if we don't notice why they couldn't see. We're going to start asking questions about what are resurrection bodies like? Are resurrection bodies unable to be seen? Or you get a new idea, new image? Do you look different? Well, notice it tells us very clearly why they don't see. Verse 16, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. For us to know God, he has to open our eyes. 
You had a point prior to his crucifixion, Jesus was talking to his disciples, and he was asking them, hey, who do people say that I am? And they said, well, some say you're Elijah, some say John the Baptist, some say Moses, a prophet. And then Jesus makes it direct. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, Jesus did not say after that, well, you see, that's why I picked you, Peter. The way you tied your nets, I could tell you were a very insightful man. You had good powers of logic and deduction, and I could select you because you would figure it out. Not at all. Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who has in heaven revealed this to you. Now, people sometimes confuse this because how did God reveal it? Well, probably by using Peter's brain, probably causing Peter to think and use logic. So it's not as though one is opposed to the other, but the truth is if we know God because he first knew us. If we love God, it's because he first loved us. If we're seeking after God, it's because he is seeking after us first. And this should humble us. Why do I see who Jesus is and my neighbor doesn't? Because God has opened my eyes. It's not because I'm smarter or I'm morally better than anyone else. It's that God has graciously given me eyes to see. And then this should also not just humble us, it should lead us in grateful adoration. It has nothing to do with me being clever. God caused me to see. Well, thank you, God, for doing that. Now, don't make the mistake many do and then go, so, well, it doesn't matter. God's got to open their eyes. So, you know, I don't need to talk to them. I don't need to be logical because they're only going to believe if God opens. Well, God opens people's eyes through logic, through thinking, through conversation. So we should continue to do those three things. You know, it's this mystery that God must act and we're called to act too. But here at this point in this story, these two men are kept from recognizing Jesus. And so when Jesus asks what things, it's interesting. Though Jesus is in front of them, all they see is an unaware stranger. And they go on, they say, well, look, what we're talking about is this man named Jesus of Nazareth. He was a prophet. He did mighty deeds. He gave powerful talks. Now, we're given a snapshot here. This was probably somewhere between a two and a four-hour walk. Surely it was much longer than this. Surely they went into the deeds that Jesus did and the words that he spoke. But here they just say, Luke gives us a synopsis. And yet it's really important to notice something. And that is that these men who are talking to Jesus are recalling historical facts. They say, look, we're talking about a man named Jesus from Nazareth. You know, they are not three days after Jesus' death going, you know, what we need to do, you know, let's come up with a story. Let's come up with something that will help us come to grips with this. They can't come to grips with it. They're distraught. And so they're recalling facts from history. They're not coming up with explanations for how they plan to create a new philosophy or religion. Not at all. The Bible in general, all throughout in here in particular, is based on historical facts, things that really happened. And amazingly, though Jesus is right in front of them, all they see is someone who is an unaware stranger. It's interesting, they had had that confession like Peter. He's the Christ, the Son of God. But now, eh, maybe he was just a prophet. They've been shaken in their faith. But they go on, verse 20. They tell of how the religious leaders 
And the elders, they condemned Jesus to death and they crucified him. Through Jesus' crucifixion was such a startling blow that they became disoriented. They became disillusioned. We see that because they declare in verse 21, we had hope that he was going he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. You have past tense hope. They are not still hoping that he's going to redeem Israel. They are disillusioned. They're discouraged. They're distraught. Their hope was placed in Jesus, but he has been crucified and dead, and now it's the third day. Part of the problem, as Jesus is going to show them, is that their hope for redemption of Israel was a political, a military redemption, a hope where Jesus was in front of the Jews, conquering Rome, not hanging on a cross, having been defeated by Rome. And yet while their hopes are dashed, there's flickers of hope. We see that in verses 22 and 23 because they express, well, look, though we thought it was over, the women said the stone was rolled away, that his body wasn't there. And even some men went and they didn't see him either. And so thus, while they talked to Jesus, they expressed their doubts about Jesus. You know, as a reader, we see the irony, but these men, all they see is an unaware stranger walking next to them. But then the story moves. It begins a major transition, for they now come to see Jesus as an insightful teacher. This is in verses 25 through 27, insightful teacher. Because Jesus responds to their disillusionment. He responds to their disorientation by rebuking them he says oh foolish ones slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken some of you know that before i was a pastor i was a math teacher and at various times i've worked for christian camps so small group leader and i've been trained many times given tips ideas how to encourage conversation how to lead how to get people to think never in my training was i told well, when they give some answers, you should say, you said that because you're a fool. And you're just very slow of heart to understand what I'm grasping and telling you. So you're a fool. Just wanted to let you know. No, we're supposed to say every question's a good question. You know, as 21st century people, we expect Jesus to say, it's okay. Y'all are trying. You're doing your best. You're trying to put it all together. You're still thinking about me. It's okay, guys. Don't worry. Not at all. Jesus rebukes them. And sometimes we need to be rebuked. Now we need to be clear, this is Jesus, the omniscient one, who can tell their hearts, I do not know anyone's hearts, so I should be cautious before I say, you are a fool, and you should too. But this isn't the only place this happens. Galatians chapter 3, Paul is writing to the Galatians, and he says, oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? What he's saying is, look, are you so foolish that what you think is going to make you grow as a Christian is how good you are for God, that what matters is, how zealous you are for God, you should be focusing on how good God is to you and how zealous God was to win you back by his son's death. He goes on to say, look, are you so foolish to think that 
it's you who is going to win in the spiritual life? No. If the Spirit brought you life, the Spirit's going to have to continue to empower you. And you're a fool to think, by my own strength, I can do this. And so he rebukes them. But Jesus explains why he rebukes them by rhetorically asking, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then Jesus answers this rhetorical question by turning to the scriptures. Now we're not given the exact passages, but we're told that beginning with Moses, through all the prophets, he shared with them the things concerning himself. Now again, as with what they shared about Jesus, what were told about what Jesus told them must have been a big overview. Probably only had a couple hours to share this. Well, what did he say? Well, we don't know, but perhaps, maybe most likely, he mentioned Genesis 3.15 because when sin first came in the world, God promised he would send one who's born of the woman, who would crush the serpent, but who himself would be bruised on his heel. There would have to be suffering, in other words. Or perhaps just coming off Passover. He talked about Passover. Look, the blood of the lamb had to be spilt. And that was pointing forward to the sacrificial system, pointing forward to the one who would need to be killed. The Christ would need to suffer. Or perhaps he went to the psalm, Psalm 22, and said, what about that psalm that said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you know, Jesus said that on the cross. Y'all just recounted that to me. The psalms are saying this is what was going to happen. Or Psalm 31, 5, where the righteous one cries, as Jesus said, into your hands I commit my spirit. Or maybe Psalm 118, where it says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The Christ was going to have to be rejected. Or maybe Isaiah 53, 3-4, which proclaims he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And we could go on because perhaps Jesus turned to Deuteronomy 18 to show that the prophet who was to come was going to have to be the Messiah. Or he turned to Leviticus that the great high priest was going to be fulfilled in the Messiah. Or 2 Samuel 7 that the king of David who was going to reign forever would have to be the Messiah. And we could go on and on. And yet, it's true. The religious leaders of that day, they weren't expecting a suffering Messiah. You can go and read Second Temple Judaism and they weren't expecting this. But just because they weren't expecting it doesn't mean that's not what it was taught in the Old Testament scriptures and is taught. Not only what was taught, but what Jesus had explained to them. Over three times before the cross, he had said, I'm going to need to suffer and be rejected by men, delivered over, and be killed. And so thus, Jesus calls them foolish. Slow of heart because both the scriptures and his own explanation of the scriptures showed them this was going to have to happen. And since this has now happened, he has entered his glory, he says, into verse 26. And Paul expounds on this, Philippians 2, 8-9. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him. He's given him this glory because he suffered 
and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. You see, Jesus is not only alive, he's saying, he's saying he rules, he reigns. He is now in glory because of his suffering. And Jesus teaches us a really important truth here. And that is, you can know a lot of the Bible and miss the main point. You can be active in church activities. You can know how to teach Bible lessons. You can be a very moral person and miss the whole point of the Bible. These men knew the verses Jesus was talking about. They had listened. They'd gone. They knew the scriptures. But they lost the force through the trees. You know, the big picture is that the Bible, the big picture is that it's about God coming to redeem mankind. It's of his son. You know, notice even the language Luke uses. Beginning with Moses, the beginning, and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Or Jesus says in John 5, 39, speaking to the religious leaders, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. So yes, good, you search the scriptures, but he goes on, and it is they that bear witness about me. This is referring to what we now refer to as the Old Testament scriptures. And Jesus then ends, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Bible is not primarily, I use that word purposely, the Bible is not primarily an instruction book on how to live your life, though it definitely has commands and principles that instruct us. The Bible is not primarily a philosophy textbook or a theology textbook, though it has true philosophy, it has true theology. The Bible is not primarily a love letter, as much as we might like that language, though it tells us of God's love. The Bible is about Jesus, how he made us, and when we sin, how he made a way to redeem us back. That's what the Bible is all about. Thus, the commands are there to show us, well, how do we live as redeemed people? How do we live in a world that he made for us to enjoy? The philosophy and theology are there because they want to show us who Christ is, the Son of God, the Trinity. And the Bible's love is not some generic love. It's love of redemption, of a substitutionary Son of God who came to die and rise in our place. And this is the key, not only to understanding the Bible, but to understanding life. You know, Jesus is the center of meaning for Scripture and us. And as we'll note, the disciples move from disorientation to orientation when they see Christ in the center of all things. And yet while their eyes have been opened to understand Scripture, their eyes are still closed to who is right in front of them. Yet we see their view changing some more because in verses 28 through 31, they view Jesus as an honored host. Verses 28 through 31, honored host. Because they are now, they're almost at Emmaus, and Jesus gives the impression he's going to go farther, and yet they, as good, hospitable Jews, say, no, 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 come in with us. It's late. It's almost dark. The day's almost over. Come have a meal with us. And so they go, and they get to the point where they're going to have the meal. And it's very common as a pastor, if I'm at someone's house and it's time to pray, they go, Pastor, would you pray for us? They're trying to honor me, and I appreciate that. It's a sign of respect. And as they listen to Jesus going on the road to Emmaus, they went from, this guy doesn't know anything, to, whew, did you hear what he said? That was really insightful. We're gonna, you, can you say the blessing? Because 
you know a lot about scripture. We, we didn't really see all that stuff. And so Jesus blesses the meal. And when he breaks the bread, their eyes are opened. And then Jesus vanishes from their sight. Well, this really raises a couple questions. First, why did Jesus wait? Why didn't he reveal himself earlier when they say, Work, we were wondering about Jesus. We had hoped. Why didn't he go, ta-da, it's me. Guys, I, I, it's Jesus. Why did he wait? Well, because he knew though he came back, he was going to leave. And they needed a sure foundation beyond what their eyes could see. They needed a firm foundation in God's word. So that they may not be able to see Jesus again physically. They could see him in the word and know that it is true. And so he explained to them that this was all foretold in God's plan. And yet there's also another question. What is it and why is it that they now recognize Jesus? The most obvious answer is God opened their eyes. It's the reverse of verse 16. In verse 16, their eyes were kept from seeing. And now it tells us, verse 31, their eyes were opened. God did it. However, like we said earlier, though God is in control of all things, he uses means to inform and illumine us. Was it as he broke the bread that they saw the holes in his hands? Perhaps. Was it as he said the blessing? It reminded them of the communion meal, the Passover. Ah, this is the way he speaks. Well, actually, no, because these men weren't at at the communion meal. The 12 disciples were, so they can't remember something that they weren't at. You know, this here, though many Christians think so, I don't believe is a communion meal. Jesus would not have left before the wine. That doesn't make any sense. This is just a normal meal. And so we should not take from this some idea that, well, in the Lord's table, when we have a meal together, God's presence is uniquely among us. Well, yes, the Lord's Supper is a wonderful time. Yes, eating meals together is a theme we see throughout Luke. And yet, to have communion with God, you need faith in Jesus Christ. You don't need any religious act. You don't need any special service. Know God through faith. Be with his people, and his presence is known. God hasn't given us in the Bible secret messages that we need to tap into. If the Lord's Supper was so important that that was how we really knew God's presence, why is it never mentioned in any of the letters? Why in the pastoral epistles instructing the churches do they not say, make sure you have communion? Now, please don't mishear me. Communion is very important. We should have it. It's a wonderful time, but it's not a mystical time. It's not a super spiritual time, as though the rest of what we do is kind of, eh, that's really not that important. So the answer really is we're not told. In some way, God opened their eyes, and now they are able to see. Not only are they able to see, we see an immediate change in them. Because now, verses 32 through 35, they see the risen Lord. Risen Lord, verses 32 through 35. Because they respond, were not our hearts burning on the road? As he spoke to us, and as he opened the scriptures, they probably immediately start talking. And they go, well, did you feel like that too? You know, as we were walking, I just kind of felt this desire, this love, this warmth radiating in me now let's be honest those of us who focus on knowledge and truth and studying scripture we're a little nervous here Ooh, talking about emotions those emotion things you shouldn't follow those those are no good you need to use your brain you need to follow facts not feelings and yet 
We don't need to divorce the truth, the two. We should have facts that lead us to deep feeling and a love for God. Coming to know Christ should bring in you a great joy, a great delight in Him. It should warm our hearts. I don't know anyone's heart. And I don't even always know my own heart very well. And so what I say next is not intended towards any person. I don't have no person in mind. But I will say, broadly speaking, having led people in worship, having preached many times over the last 10, 15 years, it's always very discouraging when you see some people week in and week out sing with joy in the songs is about as much joy as they have in shoelaces. And you think, week in and week out, does none of the songs ever make you excited? Does nothing that we're saying ever maybe bring a tear to your eye? To week in and week out, to see people who have no emotion at the sermon. Now, I'm not saying you should be all that inspired by my preaching, but God's word should bring joy and hope. Again, I don't know your hearts and let the Holy Spirit examine you, but is there not something in you that cries, Lord, would you warm my heart to you? Would you burn in me a love for you that is so inflamed for you that everything else is eh. Now, let's be honest. Well, I'll be honest. I don't always wake up this way. This morning, woke up after having a rough night with the storms and thinking about stuff. And then I look outside in some area where I tried to get the water to go away. It's standing. And so what do I, have to, I have to pray, God, would you warm my heart as I this morning read your word? Because right now I'm just grumpy. And I'm not warmed. I'm angry. And so we have to constantly pray, Lord, would you burn in us a love for you more than where the water stands? Okay, I'm really petty. You can know that now. You probably already knew that. But nonetheless, why do we let these little things Destroy our love for God. Oh, you came, you gave your life. You see, we can know all the right facts. We can have all the answers and not actually know God. And we're seeing here the disciples moving in that direction, that they are not only seeing, they are savoring the Savior. Many of you know the famous Methodist minister, John Wesley. He came to Georgia, the state of Georgia here in the U.S., in the 1730s. And I was reminded of this story this week. I was listening to a sermon by Sinclair Ferguson, and he was reminding how when Wesley came, he came not to convert others. He was very honest. He came to convert himself. He writes in his own journal, 1735, my chief motive in going to Georgia is the hope of saving my own soul. I hope to learn the true sense of the gospel by preaching to the heathen. But he knew all the facts of the gospel. He was an ordained minister. He could preach the gospel, and yet he goes, it means nothing to me. It wasn't until years later when he went, as he even confesses, he went very unwillingly to hear some people read from the preface to the commentary by Luther on the letter to the Romans. You're probably already thinking, what could that ever do? But as he sat there and he listened to Luther talk about how Christ works in us by faith, not by what we do at all, but by what Christ did, and we receive it by faith. Wesley writes, while Luther was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, in Christ alone 
for my salvation. You might know the scriptures so well that like Wesley, you could get ordained. You could go, you could be a Bible teacher. You know the facts of scripture. And yet like Wesley, it may mean nothing to you. You might have no zeal, no love. And so cry out to God. Say, God, would you give me eyes to see? Would you give me a heart of love for you? And may we have that heart, like Wesley, like these disciples, that are no longer slow hearts to believe, but hearts that are warmed, that are captivated by the gospel of Jesus. Well, amazingly, we see in verse 33 that these men now return to Jerusalem. This is rather amazing because what did they already told Jesus? It's too late. You shouldn't be out anymore. And yet, they are so enraptured by what has happened that they return to Jerusalem that night. And there they find out that not only did they see the risen Lord, but Simon had seen him that day as well. What joy there must have been as they talked about it, as they explained what happened, that they're no longer talking about, you know, we had hope. They now have seen their hope. They are hoping. They're no longer talking to Jesus as though he's an unaware stranger walking on the road or just a really insightful teacher or an honored host. He is the risen Lord. No longer are they disillusioned and disoriented. Rather, as they come to see who Jesus is, they worship. They go and they tell others. And we again have to see, as we emphasized last week, this is not because they conjured up a good story. This is not on the seven-mile walk to Emmaus. They said, you know, how could we piece this together? So we kind of scavenge. We kind of, we can save a little bit. Salvage is the word I was trying to say. Salvage a little hope in Jesus because we spent a lot of time with them. That's some wasted years if we don't piece something together to have some hope. No, they had no hope. Only as they saw the risen Christ, only as Jesus explained from the scriptures, did they go, it is real, it is true. So as we've gone this morning, we've noted this progression. Jesus was at first just an unaware stranger. Then he was an insightful teacher, which led to them honoring him as a host. And now when Jesus broke the bread, their eyes were opened to realize and see and believe he's the risen Lord. However, there's another progression going on. And that's not the progression just of their view of Jesus. It's how they're doing. Because they began disoriented, disillusioned, discouraged, with no hope. And they end rejoicing and delighting. You know, they began to improve when the scriptures were explained to them. You remember they even said, look, even before they realized it was Jesus, our hearts were being warmed. They were moving in that direction. And then this culminated not just when they knew scriptures, but when they knew the risen Christ, when they trusted in him. And then this propelled them to joyously return that very night, to boldly proclaim, not just to the disciples, but we'll see then to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Their discouragement, their disillusion, their disorientation gave way to confident, hopeful faith when they came to see and savor Jesus as risen Lord. We have to be very careful here. I, I want to warn you that if you do not see Jesus as that, he will not give you confident expectation. 
This week I saw a survey that showed that one-third of professing evangelical Christians say Jesus was just a good teacher. If Jesus is just a good teacher, you will not have this renewed hope. If Jesus is just our culture's way of understanding the divine and reaching out to it, then you will not find orientation in the midst of chaos. If it's just a philosophy to help us have some good morals, you might end with some logical principles, but you will not end with confident, unshakable faith. You'll be left, when life throws trials at you with you, when you have chaos, you will be left disillusioned, discouraged, and disoriented. What we need to see and believe is that Jesus is more than just an insightful teacher or someone we should honor. Yeah, he was a really great man. We should bow. We should worship. We should adore him for he is the one who came to redeem Israel. You see, in fact, the disciples' hope was right, kind of. They wanted Jesus to redeem Israel, but their hope wasn't big enough. Let's just imagine they were right. Let's just imagine Jesus did come, not on a donkey, but a white stallion, and not to give his life, but with a sword, and he conquered Rome. Well, that would have been great. It would probably still be in our history books, but you know what would have happened? All of those people would have died, and they would have stood before God with no hope. God had a much bigger redemption for Israel and for all who trusted in Christ than just the redemption of a political nation. He came to redeem us from sin and all its effects. Their hope was too small. Jesus came to redeem them, not from a physical foe, but our greatest foe, our spiritual foe. I don't know if you've done this, but if you ever need money, not encouraging or discouraging, just giving an illustration here, you can go to a pawn shop and give them something, we'll say a TV, and they'll give you money. When you want it back, you go and you redeem it. That's the word. You buy it back from them. You give them the money back, and they give you your possession back. Jesus' kingdom was lost due to our sin. And yet he came to buy it back. He came to redeem it, not with by us, even though we lost it. He, re-bought, he bought it back. He redeemed it with his own blood. And so Jesus came to pay the price for sin, which is death. And he conquered over it and rose again. Jesus has sent the money, so to speak. He sent the payment himself. It's been reclaimed, and yet now he promises he's going to come again. So now we live in this in-between time because we still have disillusionment. We have petty ones, like getting woken up and water being in the wrong place, but we have big ones. Loved ones die. People turn from the Lord. Nations become polarized. Our health deteriorates. deteriorates. Our finances collapse. And we get disoriented and we get discouraged and we go, what is going on? Well, if you're looking for someone just to make this life better, your hope is too small. Jesus came to redeem you so that all of the effects will not just be taken care of for 80 years, 90 years, whatever the Lord gives you, but for an eternity. That you might be with God where there's no more disease, no more death, no more sickness, no more suffering. And you can live with your loved ones and him, the one we should love most for all eternity. And so may our eyes move, not just, oh, Jesus, he's a good man. Oh, he was an insightful teacher. You know, I should honor him. 
He is the risen Lord who came to redeem me and you. And he can give you hope no matter what the discouraging times. You know, we sang in the earlier, standing on the promises. Why do all those promises have hope? Because of Christ's resurrection. You know, the movement that they had from disorientation to orientation, from lost hope to hope, it's told multiple times in the Psalms. The Psalms, the lament, we read one earlier, Psalm 63, where they begin, what's going on in this world? And yet they end in hope. How? Because they look forward. And now we look back to what Christ did on the cross, where he redeemed the world. And we look forward, too, in hope for when he will come again and make all things new. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Oh, Lord, would you give us that hope? Would you give us eyes to see? Lord, there's so many things trying to get our gaze, to get our hope. And they're empty promises. But there was one, your only son, who came to give us real, lasting hope, an imperishable inheritance with you. Lord, stir us, motivate us, give us eyes to see. In your son's name we pray. Amen.